Welcome to Darkly Lit, where we explore a giant Japanese mansion in the middle of nowhere full of dolls and creepy shit. I'm your host, Kayla King. I'm joined by my other two wonderful co-hosts. We have Sade. Hi, I'm here. Wait, did you say walls or balls? Because there were some tanuki balls at one point. There were tanuki balls, big ass tanuki balls. You are correct. I said dolls. But... Dolls. Okay. that I like that better. <laughs> <laughs> But I could say that we're in, uh, we explore a Japanese mansion in the middle of nowhere full of creepy dolls and tanuki balls. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and our other co-host, David. See, all I got was a book full of silverfish. <laughs> so we had just finished reading the novella, Nothing But Blackened Teeth by Cassandra Ka. Uh, before we delve into this novella... Uh, our haunted house novella set in Japan. Uh, David, you want to give the description? I do enjoy a good haunted house story. Mm-hmm. I'll do the best I can because on my reading of this came off the whole thing very uh, dreamlike, at least because of the prose used in the story. So if I struggle with some of the ways to describe things, it's mainly because I'm still trying to wrap my head around some of the writing. The basic gist of it is you've got five friends who are spending a unusual wedding night, wedding ceremony at a old Hayen mansion. Uh, we're talking a legit abandoned, decrepit, and definitely haunted mansion. And they all know this going into it. Like, that's the idea is they're hoping it's haunted. we got our five characters who have apparently all been friends for a long time, but are all kind of at odds with each other. Time has kind of done that to them. You've got Kat, who's our protagonist, our narrator. You've got Philip, who is the pretty boy, white guy. You have Faze, who is the groom-to-be and his bride-to-be, Talia, both of which are, you know, sort of the epicenter of this. Philip is also the rich guy who paid for the house and paid for the trip in general, so they could all do this. And then Lynn. He's Lynn. (laughs) He's there. And he just seems kind of... You'll have to forgive me because I have a hard time wrapping my head around these characters who, right after getting there, kind of get into a bunch of petty squabbles with each other as sort of old wounds resurface, especially between Talia and Kat, but you start to notice it between other people as well. Part of the point of them being there is to try and have some sort of spooky ritual to go along with this wedding setup. And they learn a little bit about the history of the house. Supposedly a woman who was set to be married, uh, her groom never appeared, but she wanted to wait for him. So she buried herself alive in the foundations of the house. And there's some bit about how potentially other women are also buried, were also buried in the foundations of the house in order to keep it going. Either way, it's got traditional, very, very spooky Japanese yokai ghost storytelling all over it. They play the game where they light the hundred candles and tell ghost stories. And when Kat finally gets around to telling her story, she's already kind of felt some sort of presence in the house. And that brings about the presence of the Ohaguro Batari. 
which is a woman with no face and nothing but blackened teeth, hence the title. This entity, which is apparently the ghost of the woman that was buried alive in the house, ends up spiriting away Talia and waking, making the whole house basically come to life, or that or the house itself is already full of spirits. And the friends get kind of get lost in the mansion, but not really. There's a feeling that they could leave at any time, but FaZe doesn't want to leave his fiance behind as much as the others want to value self-preservation. They go through various stages of being genre savvy and also not genre savvy, which is very unusual. FaZe is convinced that in order to get Talia back, they need to do some sort of ritual involving a book. And then when they find said book, he thinks that it has something to do with putting bits of uh, blood, bone, cum, and organs in the four corners of the house to represent the four kings. It all seems like a very strange and unusual ritual. Uh, no one can make sense of it. But either way, eventually, it leads to Lynn and Kat sharing a joint while FaZe and Philip fight each other. Philip breaks FaZe's nose. Phase disembowels Philip, and Philip dies. His sacrifice is enough to make them get Talia back. The ghost lets them go. They burn the house down to cover up their crimes. They go home. They have to lie about it. They drift apart, and Kat is convinced that she might still be haunted. But is it really the ghost that's following them or her own guilt? I don't know. That's my summary. Thank you for coming to my TED Talk. <laughs> Uh, yeah, that's actually a pretty decent summary. I, I suppose. It, it, there is a lot to it. I will say the one thing with the writing of this story. So Cassandra Kaw, I had to look up information about them. This is not their first novella, but they've written another one. But a lot of their writing is usually for RPG books. They actually recently wrote for Van Richten's Guide to Ravenloft. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. There's a lot of good story building in that. There's a lot of writer credits in that that I've noted. It doesn't say who wrote what parts of the book. And now I'm curious to know what Cassandra Kaw was involved in mm -hmm. in there. They also assisted with another Dungeons and Dragons book as well. The one uh, about the critical role world. Of, um... Oh, yeah. Call of the Netherdeep. Yep. That's it. But I think that gives a little context into the writing style. Yes. Which... um. First of all, maybe I should ask, what is your opinions about this story? What did you like? What did you dislike? I didn't hate it, but uh, I didn't take anything away from it either. This is honestly just a ghost story that I'm probably never going to think back on too much. It sounds kind of mean. I'm sorry. But like, I will say that like after what our last book was, it was refreshing to just read a straightforward ghost story. Uh, I don't want to like, complain about the flowery prose too much mm -hmm. it wasn't excessive i feel like it was a bit excessive i don't think i'm the only one who thought that but um i'm a little flowery when i write things too like i love describing creepy shit and i think one of uh the comments that i saw in the discord of people discussing the book was uh, this comparison how she like kind of wrote a lot of comparison to food with creepy stuff. One of my favorite writers, Poppy Z. Wright, does this where they describe food and viscera in like the same kind of like energy. And like, I've always really appreciated that. So like some of the flowery shit, like there were some really great visuals that, yeah, okay, that would be really cool to see. And like the visual that it produces in my head is pretty fucking cool. 
But did it become too much? Yes. But I think if it, like, wasn't there, this would have gone from, like, a three-hour audiobook to, like, a 30-minute creepypasta. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, I mean, overall, I, it was I, uh, refreshing in, in a sense. Okay, so I will say up front, uh, this writer's style, as you described as flowery, the term for this is called purple prose, which can be very hit or miss. Purple prose tends to be very over-descriptive, a lot of metaphors, a lot of similes. This writing style was mostly associated with the romantic writers of the British period. Actually, that's one complaint a lot of readers will have about Frankenstein, is they don't expect it to be so purple prosy when they first read it. But then when you realize, well, it was written during the Romantic period, not the Victorian period. This is my English major geekery coming out. Sorry. <laughs> um, <laughs> so as a result, purple prose can either throw people off or because it's so descriptive, a lot of people can like it. And for me, I think it is hit or miss. I agree. When, it wor- when the purple prose is used correctly, I really like it. it. Like in here, the food, great. The haunting part, that's, yep, that's what I need. When we're talking about the drama, and I feel like that's when we were talking about this on Discord or hearing this from Discord, that seems to be the point of contention for a lot of people is the when the purple prose is used during like the dramatic parts or the when the individuals are talking or the our characters are talking, especially when their relationship feel kind of petty. Again, I think this is another hit or miss thing too. I don't like the characters at all, but I wonder if that's intentional. I wonder if they're meant to be unlikable because that fits the horror story trope of unlikable characters that end up having bad things happen to them. I think in contrast with the fact that the characters are kind of unlikable, and I I agree, is the fact that with the purple prose, it's contrasted with the fact that their dialogue is super straightforward. Yes. Which is interesting. I actually do think that's an interesting choice. They're, they're, everything, their emotions and everything are surrounded by this really, really descriptive, very like beat for beat, just symbology. You know, again, the prose. But you get to the dialogue itself. It's just like, what the fuck, dude? <laughs> which is really funny and kind of interesting. My problem is I think the prose works best when well maybe i'll start with where where it doesn't because where it doesn't work is getting me to understand the relationship with these characters and getting me to understand how deep these relationships are because i i got confused about early on about how long they've known each other and it's only later on that we know that they've all known each other since they were like 16 but i almost get the vibe that talia didn't or wasn't part of that click and there's some disassociation with how like the characters you know came and went their timeline so when, when, when things happen between them, it comes off as petty because the prose doesn't, for me, doesn't convey as well as I'd like the history, trying to understand what the relationship with these characters are and what they went through. And there's some good emotional beats where they're talking about or where you're getting Kat's perspective about like how she felt walled out of their lives and how Talia just, Talia and her just fucking hate each other and how Talia is a petty bitch and, you know, stuff like that. But, and, you know, Philip and Lynn and this complex, just there's complicated relationships, sure. But I don't think we've seen enough of the history or know enough about the history to really grasp 
why a lot mm-hmm. of these things are happening. We don't know enough about the characters. The characters are almost a little bit archetypical. And even when we know a little bit about them later, it doesn't improve it much for me or give me much more clarity as to how this worked. Now, that being said, where the prose does work is when we get to the haunting. And the haunting is conducted. It's like once we get to kind of the latter half of the book where the haunting really starts and they start freaking out and everything becomes really surreal and trippy and grotesque that's when the writing i think really shines like we are getting these phenomenally descriptive uh bits about the haunting and specifically you know the, uh, a japanese haunting and it's really cool i really enjoyed this part of the book even the characters couldn't track it down enough for me at this point when we got this horrible ghost woman and these painted yokai following them from room to room and these like surreal moments where they're moving from like outdoors to indoors to like the whole mansion being this rotting decrepit decaying thing you got dolls with like insects worming their way out and books that are just decaying and full of fungus and and insect casings and it's like it's so gross and i think it gets across the feeling of a genuinely disturbing ancient haunted place and I think that's what works for me. That's what worked for me through the book. I wanted to, to end on a, on a high note there on this, my thoughts on it. Because while the characters didn't work for me, the overall ghost story part did. It kind of left me wanting. But at the same time, I did enjoy it once the pace of it kind of picked up with the the ghostly parts. Yeah, no, I, I think I'm in pretty much the same boat as you are where, like, the characters were... I didn't attach to any of them at all. They didn't interest me at all um their interactions were like you know petty almost stiff even and like um but all the stuff with the imagery of the like the hauntings and the house itself like all of that was wonderful now we're on the same page i i I completely agree a lot of the decisions they make kind of confuse me so first off the premise itself you have five friends who have traveled to japan for two people to get married at a high-end mansion especially since the bride, Talia, has always wanted to get married in a haunted place. Totally understandable. I'm all down for that. My issue with it, though, is I'm kind of confused why it's just these five people and they don't seem to really like each other that much. I mean, yes, I know they've been friends for a while, but we have the bride and the groom, Philip, who's basically footing the bill and will be marrying them, but then Kat's there, and clearly Talia hates Kat. Like, there's, she does not hide it at all. Like, why are you here? I don't understand it. And then the our other guest, Lynn, who apparently is... I don't understand fully the relationship between Lynn and the rest of the group. Because when he first arrives, he's like, I'm just here for Kat. And he doesn't even remember the Philip and Faye's being his groomsmen. And even then, I'm kind of confused by... Or he... I think... I Didn't it... Wasn't like he remembered Philip, but he doesn't remember Faze? Yeah. So I'm like, why are you here then if you don't really know the bride and groom that well? Or you don't have much of a relationship with the bride and groom? Especially if it's just just a wedding of like five people involved. I think what it was, it was uh, Faze, Philip, and Kat were the friends since they were 16. And then Talia came in at one point. 
then I think Lynn also came in through Cat. That is like, oh, okay, I need groomsmen. I'll invite Cat's two best friends. But yeah, that's that's kind of the conclusion that I came to. That I sort of got to at the end. But that's that's me just making assumptions. In no way did the book really clarify that. Because another thing I'm confused by is because Cat makes a joke about Philip ghosting her. And I'm like, what do you mean? Like, they dated, but then he ghosted? How do you ghost someone if you're still talking to each other? Isn't the idea of ghosting basically you stop talking to him and never see him again? What the heck? Also, there's also implied that Kat had, like, a, a really bad mental breakdown. And yes. she, while she was away, the group kind of, like, consolidated away from her. Or at least she gets the impression that Talia almost tried to wall her off from the rest of the group. I don't know. I just know that she's supposed to be best friends with Faze, but I don't quite see it play out i don't really Mm -mm. see them having a friendship it's just kind of like they're just kind of there it seems like she has the most chemistry with lynn almost to a point where it seems romantic but lynn is married so but and lynn apparently got married without telling cat because cat at the time was um not in a great place and and they argue about it too it's just they have these complicated relationships that don't feel complicated enough we get snippets. We don't get the complexities. I'm more I feel confused like. by the decisions. Like, okay, Lynn gets married out of the blue and doesn't tell Kat, who they clearly have a friendship together with. But and then he only comes to this wedding for her. Doesn't really know the bride and groom that well, but he's there, I guess. But and it's also a destination wedding. This isn't like. Oh, we're all hanging out at like someplace a couple hours away. They had to fly to Japan. I mean, maybe Philip probably foot the bill for all of them. That could be possible, but I think they do say that that Philip paid for all of them flying. Okay, out there. so yeah. Okay, uh, in that case, it's more like, well, it's a free trip, so <laughs> Philip's offering. The- yeah, I don't know. I I get what you're saying though. A lot of it's like, okay, why why are you here? Like it, it is. I can I can believe. A group of people having these like complex relationships but like I feel like maybe the author wanted us to fill in the gaps but there are too many gaps for it to really feel either believable or like just to make sense on even on like the the front facing like just very like okay what the fuck is going on with these people like yeah no the the characters were a mess I think it was a bit too short for that I think with a longer book Mm, I think you're right yeah there, there's too much, too many complex relationships for the amount of time that we had with them. Like, uh, what I would have loved, I think someone, I think this might relate to one of the questions that we got from a reader. The part where they were going to tell ghost stories. It would have been great if, like, each character had to- told, like, a short little uh, snippet of a story that kind of maybe reflected on their relationship with someone else in the group, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, that would have been a great place to, like, let us see more of, like, these characters' backstories with each other. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, that's what the thing I was kind of craving is is knowing more about their relationships, knowing more mm-hmm. about who they were and how they became friends and what caused them to fall apart and what brought these other people in. You know, the complex interpersonal stuff, because it's when you don't have that information, it does come off as as kind of petty. Again, that's that's kind of our takeaway from it. it. Here's another thing, too. The book is clearly genre savvy, and they actually make references to that. I mean, there's this whole joke between Lynn and Kat, and where Lynn's like, I'm the jokester in the book. We're Asian. You're bisexual. We're the ones that die first. Philip's gonna be okay. 
Spoilers, Philip's the only one that dies. There's only one corpse in this book besides the ghost itself, and that's Philip, which is actually kind of interesting. I was expecting more of a body count. I was also expecting more of a body count, but I do like that. That it was like, no, Philip's fine. He's the white guy. He's the rich white blonde guy. He'll be fine. And he's the one that bites the dust. So I, I will say I appreciated that. Philip is the only white boy, blonde haired, blue eyed jock. Guts on the floor. Oh, wait, that's later. Yeah. I also expected a higher body count i thought almost all of them were gonna die in all honesty and except for cat but there's there's a bit in there when they're talking about how the like the prose is interesting when it comes to the the hauntings themselves but sometimes when it comes to the characters it just it just create to my mind creates more confusion and sometimes it makes unintended hilarity like at one point i think they compare phase this is later on like the mansion kind of warps and distorts his look either it's his reflection or something of him in the brass mirror to looking like a hairless chow chow and that just made me <laughs> chuckle like one thing i will give the book credit for you know because I, I my feelings on it are fairly mixed but i do like that there was only one body and that the house ultimately wasn't what killed him it was one of one of his friends i mean the house pushed them to extremes but i kind of like that it was just this like crime of passion almost you know what did we think about the ghost in this story? It's cool. I'd kiss her. <laughs> Taste that tea, iron, lacquered tooth. Coppery. Yeah. <laughs> Funny enough, um, uh, I can't remember who it was, but they're in the Discord. They were like, why does she have blackened teeth? What a strange choice. And then they said, oh, that's a cultural thing. Yep. So for those who don't know, um, in Japan, especially uh, near the end of the Haim age, it was common to blacken your teeth usually for beauty purposes like yeah. i think it, it was considered a beauty standard similar to like in china they would bind their feet because smaller feet was considered attractive uh-huh. and what other weird beauty practices all around the world so mm-hmm. black and teeth is one of them i love the idea that um you said you talked about the thought of kissing the woman with the black the ghost woman is like i love the fact that cat had the same thought at one point <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that, that's why I said it. <laughs> I know, as I'm saying, I appreciate that. I, uh, <laughs> I think I'd sooner get down with some spoopy demons than than ghosts. <laughs> that is my preference. If anyone wanted to know, oh, yep. now we know. <laughs> demons greater than ghosts. Sade prefers the yokai over ghosts. Cryptids? Then it depends on the cryptid. But we'll get into that another time. <laughs> right. you sexy beast. Here's a here's a All right, here's a dumb question <laughs> since I was thinking about this too actually. Of the yokai that or since the story has yokai in it, what what would what's a yokai you'd kiss? Um uh, maybe a tengu? <laughs> I don't know. I've always had a thing for like bird-headed characters. Oh yeah. Would you prefer the bird head or just the long nose? No, the bird head. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, if like if we're gonna cross into potential like furry territory, I would think I would. I, I think I end up falling somewhere what's called the scaly, because I really like reptoid characters. You and David. Now hold on there. Hey, hey. Oh hey, yeah. Hey, hey now. I mean, there's a reason Ravity has a snake tail. <laughs> I'm not attracted to them. I just think Argonians are cool in the Elder Scrolls. That's all. I'm sorry. I mean, like, okay, like, like the lizard from Spider Man. Like, have I re- talked about him before? No. no. Like how I can't forget about this dream I had as a child where we were selling ice cream together in an ice cream tug, and it was the most romantic thing ever. <laughs> <Aww>. <laughs> That's incredible. Oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, before I 
embarrass myself anymore. Listener questions? Comments? Yeah, let's go concerns? to... Let's do that. Okay, so we actually got our first recording. Like, so thank you to uh, Urkelbot666 or Dan, who actually emailed us and sent us a recording of him giving his thoughts. We and- have had one recording in the past before from Alex forever ago <laughs> oh that's right yeah but our first recording in like forever and i think we like stopped saying that that was a thing that we would accept so remind people more like yeah send us your you can send us your comments as a recording we'd love to hear it i thought that the story underneath all the prose here was decent and it was actually pretty effective horror the descriptions of the environments and the sensations that the narrator experienced were well thought out and immersive uh, up to a point I loved all the bits about the hauntings and the evil entities constantly watching from the walls and jeering at the characters. Uh, The main issues I had with this came down to the over-descriptive, glib nature of the writing. It was so laden with adjectives, adverbs, simile, and metaphor that I was getting kind of annoyed by the end. It made the story stutter for me. Some of the descriptions were great and, and totally spot on. The parts about chewing on gristle or the scent and the feel around the black water, uh, those stood out especially to me. When the author talked about the food they were going to eat, I legitimately started to get hungry. However, the repetitive nature of describing one thing in several different ways really wore thin. I got it immediately that Philip was the golden boy. He's the Fred of this uh, Scooby-Doo mystery gang. I don't need it pounded into my head over and over the entire story. I empathized with the characters on certain levels, uh, the narrator mostly, but overall I didn't connect with them. They're childish, and I think that's kind of the point. Uh, If so, then well done by Caw. The book has youth and fire to it, and it is an experience, but I think it could have been improved as an overall narrative with some restraint and a little bit of editing. If your 120-page novella references chiaroscuro and the color of expensive chalk two times a piece, and it isn't about the process of art, it might be worth revising a little bit. (laughs) I will say, uh, I hadn't thought about the part where you realize how young the characters might be. Now, how they they might come off as more naive and petty, I, as childish. I think they're in that, their early 20s, mid-20s. Then that makes sense. I don't know why. I guess I imagined them, you know, maybe late 20s. Because with all the... Because some of them have been in school for a while, and some of them are getting married, and are, or marry, are married. And then, like, Philip had all this stuff under his belt that he'd also done. I got the impression that they, they weren't, like, young, young, but they were, you know, decently aged... <laughs> I assume they were younger than us. Not by a lot, but young enough where it's like they're in their 20s and petty stuff like this still bothers them. But then again, there are people I know in their 30s and 40s and even older who would get discuss petty stuff like this and you're just like, how old are you again? But yeah, thank you so much, Dan. A lot of what he said is basically what we discussed. So I'm glad we're not the only ones who think this way. Yeah. I mean, I have a feeling that a lot of people here are kind of on the same page with us, but I'd be still curious to hear what other people think. So I appreciate Dan coming through and very succinctly saying what we're already thinking to a degree and offering a few other caveats here and there. And then we have a, two, a couple questions by Feng Sui. So he asked, does it feel like these characters have been written in such a way that they are ideal for a haunting? Like, every one of them feels specifically damaged in an exploitable way? Mm-hmm. I mean, everyone except Philip. Philip was apparently not damaged at all. Well, Philip's the golden boy. 
I'm the only the only reason I can't necessarily compare him to Fred is he didn't try to set a trap for the monster at any point. True. Good point. Good point. I don't know. I do feel like they were just you know yes okay these are characters for a horror story these they're perfectly for sending into a haunted house and potentially getting themselves killed or making some dumb decisions. I think I have to agree there. They were kind of flat in that sense that they just kind of fit that mold a little too well. I agree. Again, I don't know if that's intentional because there is a genre savviness to it. But yeah, they fitted a little too well. Like, oh yeah, clearly these one of these individuals are going to die. And then he has a next question. In your opinion, did the author waste an opportunity by not having at least one story or snippets of stories being told from each of the characters during the quote-unquote ritual? Yep, Sadie had just said that. Yeah, okay, so good, because I, I did, like, try to go through what was being discussed in, in our Discord server, um, and so that, that stuck out in my head. I've seen, like, anime episodes where they do this ritual, and it's always, like, a fun time to, like, see, like, the different ghost stories. Like, hey, we should actually do this sometime. Um, <laughs> oh, that'd be cool. Maybe not not a hundred stories, but, like, a story each. When we got to that part, and they're like, oh, cool, they're going to do this ritual, I was, like, settling in for, like, a little bit of, like, a little marathon of ghost stories, and then it, like, cuts, and it's, like, got none of it. And I, don't, I was disappointed. Likewise. I want ghost you more ghost stories in my ghost story. Yes, I love a stuffed ghost story. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I'm right there with you. I feel like it's the that's the perfect setup for a an anthology and or some character study. So, uh, and you're not the only one. Uh, thanks, we actually continues and says I felt kind of annoyed that they set up set that up and then kind of just skipped over it completely. Which was further annoying because they then immediately circled back to, I think, Cass, and again, I'll explain why he says Cass, saying how all their tales were complete shit and here's a real story for you. Actually, I had this discussion with Fangsway on Discord because I said, you keep saying Cass because we had, uh, I had discussed the story with some of our Discord users. Um, by the way, if you want to talk with us between episodes about the books that we are reading on our Discord, Feel free to join our Midnight Marinara Patreon. Um, $1 a month and you can join our Discord where we actually have discussions about uh, the books we read for Darkly Lit. Plus, if you enjoy our other podcasts on creative horror like Undercooked Analysis and Midnight Marinara and our newest uh, show, uh, The Jameson Tapes, we actually have discussions there too. So yeah, feel free to join that. I'm, that's my plug really quickly. Anyway, um, I actually had a conversation with Fangswig because he kept using the name Cass. And I said, why do you say Cass? He says, because on the audiobook I listened to, they kept saying Cass. And I'm like, really? And then I, I did some research. There must have been different versions of this book. Because another thing that I noticed too is some of the reviews called Talia Nadia. Really? Yeah. I'm not sure if maybe uh, some of these people had arc copies and in the arc Cat was Cass or Talia was Nadia. I'm not sure, but in the book we read, it was Cat and Talia. Huh. So. Intriguing. Uh, I think we all actually read the book versus listen to the audiobook correct i think so yeah yeah i read the book i couldn't i something about the the narration for the audiobook was just it's, it was too fast it was a little too 
grading. I couldn't enjoy. I couldn't listen. So yeah, I switched to the novel or to the print on this one. Yeah, I'm starting to realize as we go through Darkly Lit that some books work much better for the audiobook versus just reading it. And then others work really well for just reading it versus the audiobook. And some just work well both ways. It's good to be able to have both to sample that out and see that and see the differences, especially when we were discussing the differences with... With the book that we'll never speak of again. With Imaginary Friend. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> it's gonna come up. I'm sorry. That's all the questions that I have. Do we have any final thoughts on this book? I almost want to go back and read it again sometime. I will say that much because I wonder if, if there's any more I could glean from it about the relationships with the characters. If I just was so distracted by the prose. Now that I know what's kind of what's going on and what to expect, I wonder if it's worth revisiting. I don't know if I will, but that goes to show that this is a book that I ultimately skewed toward liking as opposed to finding, you know, uh, you know, I, I don't think that the my personal gripes with the book outweigh its qualities. So ultimately I came away from this enjoying it, even if I have some issues with some of the ways that uh, it is presented i think pretty much the same for me like um i didn't really too much get out of it but you know there were there was enough there that i really enjoyed um that i'm you know i'm not mad i read it so same the first chapter was a little rough to get into but then once i started reading it more and more i got into it and i was able to finish it fairly quickly i again the haunting is my favorite part i'm not sure if it would be benefit if it would benefit it better to be written longer so there would be more time to for development for uh, the characters, or if it would just be better to simplify the drama between the characters in general for this and keep it as a short story. Either way, I think whatever drama was happening, there was not enough context for me to fully understand or get involved or like the characters as much. But as a story overall, I still enjoyed it. It was nice reading a haunted house story. I always like a good haunted house story, so. I think that's something we can all agree on. Every so often, just a good, good old-fashioned ghost story. And also, one that's set in Japan. I love, I, Japanese ghost stories are so awesome. They are. So, we, we were discussing what to read for next month. There is a short story we really want to read, but we figured it would be best safe for June. But then we also discussed our plans for May and we realize that there is a lot going on. So a lot has happened recently. One, David just got a new position and he actually has to start training for that this upcoming month. Mm -hmm. And then not only that, around the time we typically record, Sade is actually going to be in town along with the rest of the creative horror group. And we already have a lot of plans for that time that I don't think we can actually make the time to like sit down and record an episode. And it'd be nice not to worry about that while we're all on vacation. So we decided that we were actually going to be taking a about a month break. There won't be a May episode, but there will be a June episode. And this story we decided to read, it is a short story, is actually very fitting for June. Uh, we will be reading... The Summer People by Shirley Jackson. Ooh, Shirley Jackson. What what David said. Yay, Shirley Jackson. <laughs> <laughs> 
one of our favorite books that we have read on Darkly Lit is The Haunting of Hill House. So it's nice to finally return back to her as an author. Especially this is a short story and one that is set during the summer. And the premise has to do with a couple that stays past their time, past Labor Day. So... Oh, shit. Labor Day. <laughs> so there's actually something kind of nice about posting an episode of Darkly Lit after Labor Day <laughs> about a book where bad things happen after Labor Day. <laughs> Luckily, it is readable. Uh, we, there is a link where anyone can read it, so I will make sure to post that in the description. But, I mean, again, you have until June 13th, so. And then before we wrap up, I also actually just want to plug another one of our favorite books uh, that we've read was Cemetery Boys from Aiden Thomas, and uh, their new book, Sunbearer Trials, is up for pre-order right now. I don't think it's horror, but if you need some queer content in your life, uh, I would definitely, I'm gonna pre-order a copy. I'm I'm just gonna, I think I'll enjoy it, so I'm gonna pre-order it. Um, so I wanted to plug that because we, I really love Cemetery Boys, so I, I need to support the author. <laughs> Plus, uh, Aiden Thomas uh, recently posted on Twitter, and we made a joke about this, as they're doing a gay Titanic in space. Yes, that is not the premise for Sunbearer Trials, that is something else, but no. that I'm also excited for. I Ravel <laughs> ha- gave me a pin for my birthday once that is just this purple glittery star that says space gays, so I'm down. <laughs> <coughs> hey, if anyone knows of a good space gay horror, please let us know. If you want to reach out to us, you can reach us um, at our Twitter, at darklylitpod. As well, you can also email us at darklylitpodcast at gmail.com. You know what? I've never hosted like or given a, a contest premise for creative horror. Like, can can I just, can I just, gay space horror? Can that just be my theme for a contest? Oh my god. Oh my okay, god. The gay space horror writing contest. Oh my god. You know what? We gotta pitch it to the rest of the team, but huh. Get get uh start start forming some ideas, guys. <laughs> yeah, I love this idea so much. Oh my god, gay gay space horror. Yes. Okay. Uh, look, be on the lookout. I think this might be our next writing contest. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. I love these moments when we have these when this like epiphany happens. This is great. So we have about a hundred candles that we have to. Oh boy. Why did you do this? Can we can we eat all this delicious food first? Hell yes. Itadakimasu. <laughs> Itadakimasu. Good evening, intrepid listeners. This is the Pasta Shade, the host of Midnight Marinera, and this podcast is part of creativehorror.com, a network of podcasts and creators working together to build a constructive community of horror fans. For more content like this, visit us at creativehorror.com. Ha 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 